in Matthew 12, uh, 22 through 37. If you have one of these Bibles, it's page 530, Matthew 12, uh, 22 through 37. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself can stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak of good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the, mouth, of the, abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. We're in Matthew chapter 12, and we're looking at a long piece of Scripture, 22 through 37, as Casey read. Uh, in, in some of your, your, your uh, Bibles, you'll have a, a Scripture divide or a break from 32 to verse 33, but really, this is all kind of one piece, and so we're going to look at it as one piece. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump in, starting at verse 22. Let's pray. Lord, I, I need your help this morning. I uh, willingly concede that I am unable to do the task before me, not just this week, but every week, without you. And so I pray now for um, help. I pray that you would come and speak through me. And may I be the first set of ears that hears these words um, when there's places in my heart that I don't want to live for you. May you work on me first. And I pray for my friends here as well, Lord, that you would, you would do the work that you promise, that you would go forth into our hearts by the power of the Spirit, teach us, convict us, comfort us, train us in righteousness, all the things that your word would do by the power of the Spirit. I pray for myself, God, that you would give me clarity of mind and thought. I pray that the tone of my voice would be exactly what you want. No further, no less than exactly what you want. I pray that I'll um, speak lovingly. I pray for my friends here, Lord, that all of us after this would find ourselves believing in the gospel deeper and having greater and deeper affections for Jesus. We love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're going to see here in 22 through 37, there's kind of two big pieces that's going on. Um, the first piece is Jesus is having, a, there's a healing, and then that 
for the first kind of half, Jesus is going to have a conversation with people. Um, and basically, it's kind of answering their questions. And for after that first half of, of answering the questions, he's going to turn to the second half where he wants to talk about their heart. If you and I were to have a conversation um, and you had questions and you wanted me to answer some of those things, if I was just wanted to be nice and courteous, I would answer your questions and, and then that would kind of be it. But as we're having the conversation, if the, the Holy Spirit, and you've probably encountered this in some of your t- life with other people, if the Holy Sp- Spirit starts he- giving you um, some discernment into the heart of someone else, and only God can know the heart, but you're starting to see through conversation that their heart is hard towards the things of God. Their heart is angry towards the things of God. Um, if you were just nice and courteous, you would answer their questions and then you would kind of be done. You'd, that's it. Thanks a lot. I'm glad it helped. But um, if you were truly loving um, and you start discerning hard-heartedness in them, then what you, would, what you would want to do, I would think, if you're walking with Christ, is start addressing the hard heart that they have. Now, here's the thing. Um, doing that is very, very uncomfortable. And, and, and a lot of times it's perceived as not loving. And so that's what we're going to see here is there's kind of that first layer of objections being raised and, and Christ answers those. But because he is loving, because he is the most kind, he starts turning for that second half of the conversation, addressing the heart. So the, the two stages that we're going to see here and the big picture thing that we've been doing over chapter 11 and 12 has been doubters and deniers. And we're really in the, in the fullness of the deniers. And so what we're going to see here in this, in, in this conversation is two stages for conversations for deniers. And I just already told you what it was. The first one is whenever they have questions, you answer their objections. Um, you answer their questions. You logically defend the faith. And that's kind of the first thing we're going to see in 22 through 29. But then there's a shift. There's a, there's a turn where Christ knows their heart. And then uh, the second half is after answering questions, you talk to them about their heart. That's, that's the the two stages of conversations that we're going to see here in deniers. Um, and I cannot insist enough, and this is I'm the first one that needs to hear this, okay? <laughs> but I cannot insist enough that both of these things be done with a spirit of love. If you come across as kind of matter of fact, you need to get your act in order, what the world's wrong with you, how come you don't know these things, um, it's not going to be received. So we want to be as Christ-like as we can as we're doing this. Um, so Jesus, he, he's going to answer their questions, and after he's done with that, he's ready to talk about the heart in the second half. Uh, so what we're going to do today is we're going to go through that first set, and then in the second half, where we get to 30, I'm going to have four things that I want us to see about our heart. Uh, so let's look at 22. Um, just making some, some observations as we're, going, as we're going through some of this for us all. In 22, it says, A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. And just want to pull out mute and just show you that there's kind of a thread that's going to be running through 22 through 37 regarding words and speaking. And there's just just a thread. We're going to see a man who can't talk. Then we're going to see a man who's given the ability to talk. And then we're going to see Pharisees saying things that they shouldn't. And God's going to, Jesus is going to talk to them about their words. And then at the very end, he's going to say, everybody's held accountable for their words. So there's a common little thread of, of words being uh, shown to us here through 22 through 37. It says, a, a demon-oppressed man who was blind, and he was obviously blind and mute because of the demon oppression, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So both things that were wrong were made right. And Matthew's done with this man in 22 the rest of it in 23 through 37 is all about the conversation with the pharisees so matthew's not so much concerned about the the healing of the man as much as 
obviously, the conversation that ensues. But one little thing I want us just to see. Um, this is just a, a passing application, I think, that we can see. Um, the demon-oppressed man didn't approach by himself. Uh, he came. He was brought to him. Uh, and so, for three years now at Remedy, I've, I've over and over and over kind of put it in our hearts, I think, uh, maybe to a detriment, where I've said, there's people out in your workplaces, in your dorm rooms, in your, in your whatever, your house that need to meet Jesus. And I want to so badly, Ephesians 4, equip you to do the work of ministry that you believe wholeheartedly that you are the work of, 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 of doing the work of Christ, that you need to tell people the gospel. You've you got to tell them and they'll meet Jesus. And, and I've tuned to the neglect, and, and maybe wrongly, um, not really talked about how much it is also necessary for you to bring people to the Sunday morning gathering. I've not talked about that very much at all. And just kind of God growing me and, and helping me see is, is that it's not either or, it's both and. Um, it's a good thing for unbelievers to come into the house of God and see other believers um, worshiping Jesus. And so this man who was healed was brought because people cared. And so what I mean here is... Um, Maybe through a conversation I had this week kind of gave me some words maybe to what I'm trying to say is um, there is an empty chair around you right now. And so I would love it if, including myself, if we would all take responsibility to say, I want to fill that empty chair around me so that someone can come and be spiritually healed. It's, it's absolutely, and I'm not going to, to the neglect, I'm going to con- con- continually say, go, 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 and tell people about Jesus in your workplaces, in your schools, and, and whatever. But also... Um, it's a great thing to bring someone to the house of the Lord that doesn't know Jesus because he speaks here mightily um, as believers gather together to worship. So let's take some, let's take some ownership, and, ownership and responsibility to bring someone to that one empty chair around you as well that, that doesn't know Christ that would maybe meet Christ one day. Um, so keep going, 23, and it says, And the people were amazed. And so uh, Jesus healed this man, and the, the, the people around... Um, were amazed and they said, can this be the son of David? Now, this is the right question. Matthew and over and over and has been pointing to us that Jesus is the, the, the son of David. He is the Messiah. And so these people are asking the right question. Without a doubt, they're asking the right question. But they're just unsure. They're not sure. Is this really the Messiah? Is he the one? We're seeing the healings. And is this the promised one? And look at 24. The Pharisees do not like them asking this question. They love oppressing the people and asking them to follow their oppressive ways. And 24, it says, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, and more than likely it's in their head, they said this, because in 25, it says, knowing their thoughts, um, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. And so they're, they're thinking to themselves, Jesus healed this man, but the only reason why he healed this man is because he's doing the work of the devil. They did not like, there's two things that we, we see clearly, that they were um, having a, a stirring of dissension towards Jesus happening. Number one, an amazing healing happened in verse 22. Two and then number two, uh, number two in verse twenty-three, the people are starting to ask the right questions. They are the Pharisees love to oppress, do all these works, do all these things. That's how you know Jesus. But echoing in the in the mind and echoing the hearts of the people when they're asking this question is this glorious gospel call from eleven, uh, chapter eleven, verse twenty-eight, where Jesus is saying, "You don't have to be oppressed by the religious leaders. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden." I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly. So this, this gospel call is echoing in the hearts and minds of these people. And they're starting to ask the right questions. And the Pharisees don't like it at all. The Pharisees like their, their power they have over these people. And in 25, it says, knowing their thoughts. Um, I was kind of talking about this at first service. So that would be great to have this ability. Would it not? Like, for us married folk, wouldn't that be great to know the thoughts of your spouse? And then I realized that would not be great because I'm such a bonehead. I would know all the thoughts of Christy about my boneheadedness. And I don't want to know. It's better that I don't know those things. But in general, Jesus is awesome. He uh, is certainly showing that he... Um, is de- has, he is, he's God himself. He knows their thoughts. And so he wants to address that. And so I said in this first half, objections or questions are being raised and Jesus is going to answer those. And, and Jesus just has to be the ability to, when the objections or questions are raised only in their head, he's, he's still going to answer them. But no less, that's still our, our kind of guide. They're just going to be verbalized to us. You're not going to read their minds. Um, so <laughs> in 25, it says, every kingdom... And this is his answer to their, to their thoughts. Every kingdom divided against itself. And what he's doing is he's answering their questions, logically defending the faith. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And then he says in 26, And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, um, what he's saying is it's basically uh, really, really not smart if I'm trying to build a kingdom here, that I cause internal attacks upon myself. I will destroy myself if I cause the internal attacks. So he just shows them at face value that their thoughts are completely incoherent. Um, and that's why he says, no kingdom, no city, no house will stand long term if it intentionally rises up internal conflict just to try to defeat itself. Abe Lincoln said it, but he's just quoting Matthew 12. Um, and so that's what's going on here. Um, and, and Jesus points this out to him. And then he says in 27, he, he's gonna, he's, that's one argument clearly defined. He's going to move it even to a deeper place in 27. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, if you're saying that the work that I'm doing is the work of Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? There's a Jewish historian, Josephus, who lived, who was not a Christian. He had no reason to say anything um, positive towards Christianity. But there are in his works where he, he says... Prior to Christ, where um, the Jewish people were you know, living out their faith, that there were times where those, uh, those people who were the religious leaders actually did exorcisms as well, just like this. This man had a, had a demon, and there were times where they had done it. Now, what was the case was those Pharisees were in no way nearly as successful as Jesus. I mean, they were kind of successful, and Jesus is really successful. And so he's saying, if you're saying that I'm doing it by the, by the power of Satan, and I'm far more successful than you... Well, how about you? You're nowhere near as successful as me. Who are your sons doing it? And I'm doing a good thing. I'm casting out demons. What about you? So brilliant. I mean, obviously he's Jesus, so he's saying something that's incredibly brilliant. Um, And then he's going to turn it for him on on 28. And this is a huge but if. I mean, a huge but if. And when he says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. And it must be. Because if, you're, if, I'm, if I'm doing it against myself, I'm going to destroy myself. And the work that I'm doing is far greater than anything you've done in your history. So it must be that I'm from God. 
You are going to be opposing God. And that's what he says in in 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come. It's really here and you've got to pay attention. He's he's in essence saying, I'm the Messiah and you, you, you can't oppose me. If you are, you're opposing God himself. Now, um, Jesus, this is pretty awesome because what he's wanting to do here is, is make his point even better known in verse 29, but it's story time with Jesus. Gather around uh, Pharisees. Everybody have a seat. Sit on your mat. Be kind. Don't mess with each other. Story time with verse 29. I'm going to give you a parable. We're, we're going to get to parables in, verse, in chapter 13 soon in our next little mini-series. And it's going to be brilliantly titled Parables. Um, but in, uh, here... I know, I'm, I'm so original. Um, in 29, uh, Jesus is going to give us a parable. Now, one thing you need to know about parables is they're, they're parables. Meaning, don't try to like figure it all out. There's one point, and if other things don't kind of make sense, I'm going to explain that in just a second. Don't, you know, draw everything out to logical conclusions. In 29, parable time, it says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. So if you're going, Jesus basically says, if you're going to go steal something from someone and the guy there is huge, then you can't just go and start taking it. He's going to destroy you. So you have to somehow, and I don't know how because I've always been small, you've got to go in there and you've got to somehow bind this man. And if you bind him, then you're free just to take every single thing you want. So like the first is, is Jesus teaching people how to steal? Is that, what? Is that what's going on here? Jesus' advice on how to rob? This is a parable. This is a parable. So don't take it to crazy logical conclusions. He has one point he's trying to teach, which is this. Here's what's going on. In verse 29, um, we know that there was a strong, strong anticipation of the people of God that they, they were looking forward to the binding of Satan. One day... The, the Savior's going to come and he is going to... They had, a, they had a good understanding of the end times that one day he will be bound and the Savior will reign supreme. And so he's saying that um, I am the one who comes in and binds the strong man. That's Satan. And whenever I bind Satan, I am free to go in there and plunder his house. What is it that he's plundering? Because he's, he's not stealing. He's going in and taking what's rightfully his and what has always forever been rightfully his let let me tell you from ephesians chapter one what jesus is going in and taking what's rightfully his as he's bound satan blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as here it is even as he chose us these are believers in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us he predestined us for adoption through christ what's going on is because of the sin of adam all of us now have been uh have a corrupt human nature where we have willingly fallen away from christ and god has come to find those that are his and bind Satan and take everybody that has been eternally predestined from, from the foundations of the world that are rightfully his. He's coming to take those that have been enslaved and take them home himself. He's coming to get his people. And in order to do that, he's going to bind Satan and get his. That's basically what he's saying. And so as we're looking at it in context, he's saying, I'm not doing the work of Satan. I'm binding Satan and I'm doing the work of God. And I'm healing people and I'm telling people the gospel and I'm drawing them to myself. So 
story time's over, and then he's going to switch it here to verse 30. And this is, this is where the, this transition, I said, happened, where um, Christ has answered their questions, been kind-hearted, and now, because he is the most loving, and this is, and no doubt, I think the most difficult for me and perhaps for you, after people have had their questions and you're discerning a heart that does not um, want the things of God, is not sensitive to the things of God, you, you sense a heart that has a dislike or even a hatred for God, you have to address the heart. And this is what Jesus... Verse 30 is that transition over where, where Jesus is going to talk to these Pharisees about the heart. Now, here's the thing. Before we get into the rest of this, I want to say, um, Jesus is talking to Pharisees. This is Jesus talking to unbelievers, in a sense. Like, if, if we're going to look at it as, you know, what's, what's apples to apples? Pharisees were opposed to God, did not, did not w- obey the things of Christ, 21st century. So this is applicable, apple, apples to apples, to those who are not in Christ today. Um, if you're here, um, the majority of you, I would assume, know Christ. So as we're looking at Jesus have a conversation with unbelievers, I want all of us, I'm, I'm inviting myself, all of us, we're going to kind of peer over the shoulders of these unbelievers and say, surely, as he's talking to these unbelievers, there are principles and things that I can learn and ask about myself. He's talking to unbelievers, but as he's doing that, as a believer in Jesus who, who loves his word, I'm going to peer over the shoulders and I'm going to listen in and I'm going to hear about these four things about unbelievers' hearts and just do the, do the right work of kind of looking at my heart as well. That's what we're going to be doing in these next uh, set of verses. And there's four things I want to talk about about our heart. Now, let me, let me intro this section with this question. If you were to say, right now, present status, how would I rate myself spiritually? Um, and this is a very subjective thing. I mean, you could just be completely in the dumps right now because, you know, you cussed out your your neighbor today, this morning for having his dog go in your yard. But whatever. Um, like, or you could just be loving it. Like you had a great day in the Word this morning or a great time and you, you, you prayed for three hours. Whatever. I just want to kind of ask about yourself. Like, on, ongoing, the kind of story of, of how you are right now, where would you rate yourself spiritually? Would you say if, if one's freezing cold tundra and 10 is burning hot, on fire for Jesus, living for him like every second. Where would you rate yourself? Would you say both, or would you, would you say I'm kind of in the middle, you know, I'm back and forth, wishy-washy, here and there? Because what Christ is going to address here, and I know this is to unbelievers, but I think that we can all think about this. Christ is going to address the neutrality. I'm not opposing, and I'm not for. I'm just right here in the middle. Christ is going to address this neutrality and blow it up. He is not for neutrality at all. Um, as a matter of fact, this might be one of the most important things that we might hear this morning. This might be the most applicable for you if you find yourself in just an apathetic, neutral situation in regard to your walk with Christ. Because indifference and apathy actually is what he's going to say, is going to put you on the opposing side of Jesus. Neutrality is not neutrality when it comes to Jesus, is what he's saying. And so I think of verses like Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 3, 15 and 16. It says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. He's just saying, stop being neutral. Get one or the other. That's to the church. That's not to unbelievers. So let's look at verse 30. It says, whoever, I know he's talking to unbelievers. 
Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever scat and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So here's the first thing that I want us all to kind of see about our hearts. And this is for unbelievers, but clearly applicable for us who are believers. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. It's impossible. If you are neutral, then you are in opposition to him. Um, Let's look at the second half of 30, because I think the second half of 30, as I kind of thought through it over this week, it really, really, I found it convicting in my own life. Look at the second half of 30 and just kind of went through it fast. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you aren't actually trying to gather, bring people to Christ, you're actually scattering. Neutrality is in opposition to Jesus. What he's saying is inactivity is actually activity opposed to him. If you are not gathering, you're actually scattering. And maybe we've never put categories on our our inability to do mission but this is this is pretty interesting language from jesus um therefore number one you cannot be neutral about jesus you just you just can't be he is he is so penetrating down into the depths of our heart he calls for absolute reckless abandon or no way now he's going to go into interesting text in 31 and 32 and if you've ever spent any time in youth ministry which i had for a while before i uh, planted um this was like the one of the most asked questions what's the unforgivable sin um how do i you know stay away from hell what's the most unforgivable thing because i don't want to go to hell it seems bad and hot and terrible so if as long as i don't do that then i'm good what is that and just a misunderstanding of the gospel completely and the word and all these kind of things but it comes from this whenever you see therefore i will tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven for people but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven so like just make sure you don't do that and then you're good and that's what most most youth think um it says whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, forgiven even this age or the age to come. And so there's kind of this ongoing thought, as long as I don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then I'm good. Uh, and that's not necessarily exactly the, the, the one-to-one understanding. Let's, let's try to get a, a good understanding of what 31 and 32 is saying. The key is, right there in verse 31, the first word says, therefore. So we know that we're going to have to look at 30 and let 30 tie into 31 and 32 for us to give us a good understanding of what all this means. Because um, there's questions that kind of arise. Uh, what's blasphemy against the Spirit? How is it different from blasphemy against the Son? Why is one forgiven for one and not forgiven for the other eternally? Um, I don't have tons of time. I'm just going to try to nutshell it for us all. Um, or else I'll talk forever. Uh, but trying to put 30 with 31 and 32 all together is this. Remember, the context is that the Pharisees were saying, the work that Jesus is doing, that's the work of Satan. They're assigning the Holy Spirit's work of Jesus to Satan. That's the context. And so here's kind of putting it all together um, is this. Saying the Holy Spirit does Satan's work, distorts reality, and distorts one's heart so much that repentance is impossible. And if repentance is impossible, forgiveness is impossible. That's, that's basically what he's saying. This is a hard truth. 
No question about it. But um, it, it sounds, I think, a lot like Romans 1. Let me just read this text to you where Paul's kind of in Romans 1 talking about people who are willingly walking away from God. What happens to their heart after they continually keep walking away from God? It says that God looks at them and gives them off or get, lets them go on in that way into a debased mind. This is what it says. 128. So it's talking about people not following Jesus. And it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy. So you can see that since they didn't want to do what was right, God just gave them over to those desires. And so this is kind of the same idea. And you can see... Um, where it says that they're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish. That's an odd little saying in there, right? After all these things, he throws in, and they're disobedient to their parents. So kids, obey your parents, all right? You have a debased mind. Um, I'm just... <laughs> go to sleep. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, if you read that to your kids at night? And so, don't disobey. <laughs> Good night. Um, anyway. <laughs> all right. Got to get back. All right, so here we are. Um... So what we've learned here from 31 and 32 is this. The first thing is that we can't be neutral about Jesus. We cannot be neutral. The second thing about your heart is this, that we need to learn is refusal to believe. Refusal to follow what the Holy Spirit's promptings are in your life. To put your faith in Jesus is dangerous. And in the end, um, will bring death. It will bring death. Now... Jesus here um, is going to, in 33, continue the argument here. But here he's going to use some imagery about trees. And what I want you to see, this next little section is 33. This point number three comes from 33 through 35. Uh, And what I want you to see is we're going to use the word tree in 33. We're going to use the word heart, which is actually what we're talking about in 34, and treasure. So all these things are the same. Tree in 33 is actually talking about your heart. And treasure in 35 is talking about your heart. And that's, that's kind of what we're talking about here in 33 through 35. 33 says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Right now, Jesus is saying, as it stands, Pharisees, you are dreadfully inconsistent. Dreadfully inconsistent and hypocritical by what you're saying. You're saying healing a, de- a, a, a demon from someone is good, but it's being done by Satan. You're saying the work or the fruit is good, but the tree's bad. He's saying either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. You'll know the tree by its fruit. So if I'm doing something good, the work is good, then the tree is good. And obviously there's parallels for us. If our heart, as we see it in verse 34, the abundance of the heart mouth speaks. If our heart is right, then we're going to bear good fruit. We're going to have good treasure. The things that we're going to be doing are Christ honoring. So... Here he's, he's pointing out this, and he's saying that what you're, what you're saying I'm doing is of Satan, but you're saying the work is good, but you're calling me a bad tree. That's inconsistent. Obviously, what he's saying to them, <clears throat> because I'm pretty sure um, that it's bad to say the work of God is Satan's. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure he's saying the work, that, the fruit you're bearing is bad. What does that say about you as a tree? You're a bad tree. So he's kind of turning it on them, um, and he's, you know, he does it with such ease, like one verse. That's pretty amazing. You don't have to say much more. One verse and he turns it on him. And then in 34, he says, you brood of vipers. I mean, I wish I could uh, try to do justice of the weight of this word 
that he is calling them, or this phrase when he calls them a brood of vipers, that Jesus, it is just very, very, very strong language to call them a brood of vipers. Remember, the fall in Genesis 3 was from the serpent. And so the Pharisees found this extremely, extremely um, condescending, if you will. Uh, So here's the thing that Jesus is trying to say, though, in the whole section. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here's the third thing that we all need to think about our hearts. The main problem is your heart. That is the main problem. If you need to know what you need to know about your heart, that's the main problem. That's why the Bible says things about our heart and says things about us being new. Because a lot of times we want to address the sins, lowercase s, the things we're doing. And that's not the problem. The problem is our sin. It's the fact that we have and I have a a distorted heart from the fall that wants to do wrong things. It wants to sin continually. And that's not... If I just address those things that I'm doing, I'm not addressing the problem. Instead, what we need to do is instead of addressing the lowercase sins, we need for God to come and address the fact that I am a sinner. Address the capital S sin. And then, out of this new heart, out of this new man, I'll start doing right things. So that's why we see in Romans 6, 4, he says we're raised to newness of life. In 2 Corinthians five seventeen, he says that you are now a new man. Or in John 3, he said you need to have the new birth or be born again. So the problem is your heart. You need to have a heart change. God can only do that. You can't change your heart. And so if you don't know Christ, the way to address the bad fruit in your life or the evil treasure that you're doing is that you have to have a heart change. And only God can do that. Which means you say, Lord, please come and save me. I cannot change myself. I've tried to live the right way and I can't. I need Jesus and his work on the cross and the forgiveness that he extends to me to come to me and make me a new man and so I can receive forgiveness. This is what he's calling you for, or calling you to, I should say, right now. To pray and receive and believe in his work on the cross. You have to have a heart change. D.A. Carson says it this way. What a person truly is determines what that person says and does. What a person truly is. So who you are at your core. Are you a new man in Christ or are you still operating in the old man? You have to become a new man. God does this. And so you have to ask him to do that. Then that determines what you say and do. Now, that's, the, that's number three is that the main problem is our heart. And we need for God to give us a new heart. Um, I, I can't overemphasize the fact that he's talking to unbelievers, but we as believers need to look at 34b and, and really heed that, which is, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of your heart, you're going to, if you're in Christ, have good fruit, give good treasure. And so if you were to just kind of take the, the step back and look at the story of your life and say, Am I bearing good fruit or bad fruit? Am I having good treasure or evil treasure? Because it's out of my heart that that happens. If I just look at the whole of my life, and I'm not saying you're not going to have hills and valleys. You are. So do I. But if I'm in Christ, I need to say, it's out of the abundance of my heart my mouth speaks. It's out of the abundance of my heart that I'm going to do things for God. If I'm bearing bad treasure, what does that say about my heart? 
we all need to sometimes ask ourselves, what's going on in my heart? Because who a person is determines what that person says and does. Now, in 36 and 37, this is the fourth thing. And this is where um, Jesus wants to talk about our heart. And if we don't turn to him, if we don't follow him, this is what happens. This is the fourth one, is this. Your heart will one day be judged. The last thing you need to know about your heart is if you don't put your faith in Christ, it will one day be judged. This is exactly what he's saying in 36. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless or or idle word they speak. That's a pretty scary thought, huh? Every careless word that you say. Now, I know this is to unbelievers, but we as believers need to take heed. We need to think through the way we talk. Give account for every careless jab we take at our spouse, every condescending thing we say towards our child or brother or sister, every time we speak out to that person. 36. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. You can see the thread all the way from 22 to the end about the the importance of words. A man who couldn't talk is being able to, to talk now. Jesus heals him. Pharisees say wrong words. Jesus speaks words to correct them. He tells them that your words really are about your heart. And then here he says there will be a judgment about our words. So, um, words matter. But the heart matters more. In 37 he says, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is not at all at, at all at odds with Paul and Romans. Um, he's just simply, if you remember what he said in 34, out of your heart is how your mouth speaks. So your words, if they're bad, reflect your heart and they show whether you're justified or not. Your words, if they're bad, then show that you have been condemned. So if we're in Christ, there is therefore now con- no condemnation if you're, if you're in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are justified, as Romans 3 says. But your words do show whether your, um, your heart is, is deeply been changed by Jesus. It does show whether you want to, with your life, reflect the worth of, of Christ and really live out and bear good fruit and have good treasure. So that's the last thing that he says here about our hearts. So as we're, as we're kind of summarizing this, this looking on, um, as Jesus talks to unbelievers, I think that all of us who are in Christ, and if you're not in Christ, heed the warning that we said in that, in that third one. Put your faith in Jesus. Come to him now for forgiveness. Your heart is the problem. You will never, ever be able to perform up to expectation. Instead, God needs to change you. And so you just you beg him to forgive you, and you ask forgiveness, and then he gives you a new heart, and then that's how you live. But for those who are in Christ... Consider these, these things, that you can't be neutral about Jesus. You just can't. There's seasons, I, I know, where sometimes life is difficult and you have things, but the ongoing of who you are cannot be a life of neutrality. And as a matter of fact, if it is, you're in opposition. That's, there's no other read, way to read verse 30. If you refuse, 
It's dangerous. It's dangerous work. But God wants you to look at your heart, consider your heart, and do the hard work of looking at it and say, am I bearing good or bad fruit? Is, am I bearing good or evil treasure? I don't want to bear bad fruit. I don't want to bear evil treasure. I want to have a heart that is soft to the things of God, completely enamored with Christ, and overflows with acts of worship towards Him and towards my fellow man. I want to declare to them the gospel and demonstrate its works in my life by telling them about Jesus and meeting their needs and worshiping Christ with my life. That's the overflow of being the new man. That's the overflow of having the new birth in our life. D.A. Carson says it this way, Every spoken word or every action reflects the heart's overflow. It reflects who your heart is truly enamored with, whether it's Christ or self. And it's known to God. He knows it. He knows exactly. And so, I think that the best thing that we can do is, as we're looking at this, um, if the Holy Spirit is, is kind of knocking and saying, there's, there's, there's places in your heart where you're not treasuring me. There's places in your heart where you're not bearing good fruit. Maybe we can ask ourselves, why? Do the hard work of looking at our hearts and, and pray and, and read or, or whatever you need to do. But as we're going into this worship set, um, remember that if you are in Christ, you are not condemned. Those things right there that you are feeling convicted about, are completely forgiven by Christ in the gospel. And that's reason to stand and worship. You don't have to sit there self-condemned. You can stand and worship Jesus because He is great. He has forgiven you for even that and you are now ready to live a life of worship for Him. You are not going to. And Christ will not let you stay apathetic and neutral. That's not the way He's called us. So as we go into worship, let me say it this way. Um, yesterday I was, day before yesterday, I was reading in Isaiah. And uh, some of you might know this story. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord. And as soon as he sees the Lord, he says, I'm ruined. And a lot of times, the only way I've ever heard this, um, and um, I think it's right, of course, is when he looks at God and sees the manifest holiness of God, immediately he cannot help but look at himself and say, based on that holiness, I am so sinful. I'm ruined. I'm just ruined of a man compared to that. But then I started thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if also a secondary meaning of that is I've seen the Lord. I'm ruined. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will do. I have tasted and seen Him in person. I'm ruined. I don't want to know that. I don't want to know that. That will never satisfy. My heart has been ruined to only be able to experience and taste what is most highest. Jesus Himself. That's the spirit of which I want us to enter worship. A heart that has been ruined by experiencing Jesus so clearly that sinful things, things that are just so temporary, we, we can't even imagine wanting because God 
has let us have a taste of himself, nothing else will do. Let's enter into worship with that kind of heart. Let's pray. Jesus, only you can satisfy. And I I, I am the first and foremost here that who needs to confess and repent of moments of apathy, seasons of indifference, or times of neutrality in my life. I know that I'm not condemned. I know that those who are not in Christ would be. But I am not because I'm in Christ and you have... You have given me the new birth and I am now a new man in Christ and there is nothing in me that can boast. It was because you bound Satan and you went into his house and you took what was rightfully yours, namely me. You, and I don't know why. I have, there's nothing, nothing about me that I see as great. But you have chosen to predestine me from eternity past and call me in to be your son. And I just want to live a, live a life of grateful gratitude and worship. And in these moments of apathy where I see that I'm actually in opposition, I repent of these things. We as a church repent of these things and beg of you now to give us a heart desperate for your presence. So as we go into a time of response and maybe we, we, we as a church confess apathy, Lord, don't just leave us there. By your Spirit, Give us a fresh blow of your spirit into this church where we rise and worship Jesus because you never leave your sons and daughters in a spirit of apathy, but you call them in to see just how glorious you are. And we begin to bear, out of our hearts, begin to bear good fruit, have good treasure. And Lord, we see people meet Jesus. We join your work in gathering. May we be gatherers and proclaim this great gospel that you're extending in 11, chapter 11, 28. Come, all who are weary, come. Jesus gives you rest. His way is easy. His burden is light. So Lord, let us join that with gladness of heart. Be with us now as we worship. Let us taste and see Christ deeply and know that he is good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.